Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to inspire you to follow Christ, and to convict you to lead a consecrated life. Like all kingdoms, God's kingdom is political in nature. As a result, the kingdom requires allegiance from its citizens. By examining Jewish messianism and Roman political sensibilities, you'll come to better see how early Christians prioritized their allegiance to the age to come over their local and national allegiances. Like the last lecture of the Kingdom Way, this concept of allegiance is another way in which the entire understanding we've already built about the kingdom now comes to affect how we live and think today. So this is actually a, indeed a very important subject and one that one that is rarely talked about in Christianity today. This is Lecture 9 of the Kingdom of God class, originally taught at the Atlanta Bible College. To take this class for credit, please contact ABC so you can do the work necessary for a grade. Here now is Podcast 100. Kingdom Allegiance. Lecture 9, Kingdom Allegiance. In this lecture, I want to unpack the political implications of the kingdom message. And I want to look at two parts. One is Jewish Messianism, and the other is Roman allegiance. There are two worlds in the New Testament, the Jewish world and the Roman world. Jewish people think from a Hebrew mindset, Roman people think from a Greek mindset, Greco-Roman. I mean, the Romans you know, had some of their own ideas as well, but largely the way the Greeks thought about things was the way the Romans thought about things. And in particular on this one, we want to consider how Roman allegiance interfaced with the kingdom message. How did that conflict or connect? And same thing with Jewish messianism. So to start... In looking at Jewish Messianism, we're going to look at Jesus in his context. And then for Roman allegiance, we're going to look at, in particular, Paul's epistle to the Philippians in its context. And I think what you'll see is that the kingdom message itself has incredible political implications, especially in its original time. So what I want to do in order to get started on Jewish Messianism uh, what I want to do is look at some leaders of Messianic movements and quasi-Messianic movements and build for you a little bit of a mindset, a picture of what it was like to say you're the Messiah in the time of Jesus. For, first up, we have Athranges here. Herod the Great had died. This is in the year 4 BC. Revolts broke out against the new Herod, a guy named Herod Archelaus. Athranges was a shepherd. He was tall and strong, and he set himself up as a king. Turns out he was a fierce guerrilla war, warrior. Uh, guerrilla warfare is where you, you hide and then you sneak out and you attack. Uh, he had four brothers who were also tall and strong, and each had a posse of men, and his followers crowned him as king. And he retained his power for three years. This is uh, around the time that Jesus was born. This guy was active. And he ended up killing a lot of Romans and a lot of Herod soldiers. And he attacked a Roman company at Emmaus. Have you ever heard of the town of Emmaus? He attacked a Roman company there and killed 40 people. 
As a result, the Romans sent more soldiers, and Gratus killed one brother, Ptolemy killed another, and their army grew weaker due to sickness and continual labors, and eventually, Athranges turned himself in to Archelaus with the promise to preserve his life, and he turned himself in. So that's uh, sort of like a messianic movement before the time of Christ. Shortly after that, there was a man named Judah the Galilean in the year 6 AD 6. The Romans got rid of Herod Archelaus, and that's because Archelaus was such a bad ruler. As a result, they decided to do direct rule, and that's like why we end up with Pontius Pilate later on. But before him was a man named Coponius, who established new taxes. And so because the Romans were taxing, this Jewish charismatic leader named Judah the Galilean said that taxation was no more than slavery. Freedom! And he started a revolt, a large revolt. People believed in him. According to Josephus, Judah founded the Zealots, the Zealot Party, which some scholars have debated that. And what they say is that God is our only ruler, not these filthy Romans, right? They say God is our only ruler. The Romans killed him and his followers scattered. That was the year six. After the time of Christ, there was the Samaritan prophet in the year 36, who stirred up a mob in Samaria. He organized a march to Mount Gerizim. That's the place that Samaritans believe is the proper location of the temple. When they got there, he, sh he said he was going to show them the sacred vessels that were buried that Moses deposited. Mm. His followers showed up in arms and posted at Tarathana, a village near the mountain. Okay, so he, he's a charismatic leader. He's like, hey guys, I'm going to show you something really important on Mount Gerizim. All these people show up with weapons and they're at this village near Mount Gerizim and their numbers continue to swell. People continue to go to this little village, Tarathana, and what ends up happening is the Roman governor, I don't know if you ever heard of him, Pontius Pilate, heard about it and sent in the cavalry and heavily armed infantry. At which point they surrounded the town, they captured the town, and they took many prisoners, and they put to death the leader, the Samaritan prophet. After him, in the year 45, we see another messianic movement, a guy named Thutis, who led followers to the Jordan River and said he would command the river to part, providing them easy passage like Joshua had done in the Old Testament. Of course, right after Joshua parted the Jordan River, if you recall, they went and defeated Jericho, right? So you cross the Jordan to enact the battle. And so he's going to cross the river and uh, probably fight the Romans. However, Fadus, the Roman governor, sent a detachment of horsemen to Thutis, and the Roman troops overtook him and his rebellion unexpectedly, killed many and took many alive, but Thutis himself... They did succeed in capturing alive, but then they cut off his head and carried it to Jerusalem. So there's Thutis near 45. He did cross the river. He did. He did. Uh, I don't know if he parted the river, but he went through it <laughs> or over it. Uh, in 58, we had the Egyptian prophet. He had, uh, one source says, 30,000 followers that gathered in the wilderness, and he led them up onto the Mount of Olives 
And of course, from the Mount of Olives, you can see Jerusalem clearly. And he said that at his command, the walls of Jerusalem would come down, just like Joshua with Jericho again. They would break into Jerusalem and take the Roman garrison. Followers would assist in the new government. If you come with me, I will command the, the walls of the city to fall. We will take the city from those filthy Romans, and you will be in my new government. The Roman governor Felix ordered his soldiers to attack. A great number of horsemen and footmen charged Mount Olivet. They killed 400 and they took 200 alive. The Egyptian escaped, but no one ever heard of him again. Then in the year 69, there was a man named Simon Bar-Giora, a competent general who attracted 40,000, not just random people with pitchforks, but soldiers. And he promised liberty to slaves and awards to the free. The Jewish leadership in Jerusalem had already begun a rebellion against Rome. The Jewish war began in 66, if you, re if you recall, if you've ever studied that. So 69 is pretty late in the Jewish war. And this Simon Bargiora guy wants to establish himself as a leader. The Jewish leadership in Jerusalem were afraid of this guy. So, and I don't understand why they did this, but because they were afraid of him, they kidnapped his wife and some of her entourage and threatened to kill her if Simon did not promise to stay out of Jerusalem. This just made Simon super angry and caused him to camp outside of Jerusalem and capture anyone who was coming out of the city and torture them. Eventually, the leadership in Jerusalem let her go out of fear of what Simon would do. And so he entered Jerusalem in the year 69 and ruled as king and minted coins that said, the redemption of Zion. The Romans, of course, surrounded the city and eventually broke through the walls. And Simon took a bunch of stone cutters with him into a cave under the city. And they started digging a tunnel to try to get out of the city because the Romans were coming in. So they're trying to get out. And the stone was hard to cut and they ran out of provisions and his plan failed. So Simon ended up appearing suddenly among the ruins of the burning temple wearing a purple robe. And the Roman captain, a guy named Terentius Rufus, took him and brought him to Rome. And he met his fate in a parade in Rome while they were celebrating the conquer of Jerusalem. He was thrown from the Tarpian Rock near the Temple of Jupiter, which is an 80-foot drop. All the money to build the Colosseum. Yeah, that's when they had all the spoils from the first Jewish war, including the menorah. There's a famous uh, stone monument that uh, shows them, them carrying the menorah as part of the parade. What did the coin say? Redemption of Zion. So that's Simon, not the only Simon. Here's another Simon in the year 132, Simon ben Kosaba, who is also called Simon bar Kokhba. That means son of the star, Bar Kokhba. It's a reference to the Numbers prophecy of Balaam about a star will rise from Judah. I don't know if you ever read that one before, but he's, he's trying to say that he's prophetic. Numbers 24, 17. Rabbi Akiva hailed Simon ben Kosaba as Messiah. I mean, straight out, this guy's the Messiah. And Rabbi Akiva was like the most famous rabbi. So if you have the most famous rabbi saying, hey, that guy's the Messiah... A-K-I-V-A. Simon ben Kosaba minted coins that said on one side, Simon, Prince of Israel, and on the other side, year one of the redemption of Israel. 
I love that. It's just so, that's such a gutsy move. Like, hey, this is year one. We're going to win this thing. Of course, you know, there's a lot of history here, but in the first Jewish war, which ended uh, in 74 in Masada, the Jews totally lost to the Romans and their temple got destroyed in the process. This, this Simon bin Kosoba is integral in leading the second Jewish war in the year 132 to 135. He was a ruthless leader, this guy. He had 200,000 insurgents at his command and insisted, this is just unbelievable, he insisted that young recruits prove their valor by chopping off one finger. You wanna be part of my army? Hold up your hands. Yeah, the 200,000 that agreed to that? Yeah. They yes, they were, and they lost. Uh, the revolution lasted for three years, from 132 to 135. Roman losses were very heavy. These people were committed. They already lost a finger. Eventually, they overtook Bar Kokhba and killed him. So here is the point I'm making by bringing up these one, two, three, four, five, six, seven examples of messianic movements from before during and after the time of Christ, my point is very simple, that if you claim to be a Messiah or a Messiah figure, a quasi-Messiah, then the Roman Empire is going to hunt you down and kill you every time. Sometimes you might escape with your life, but your movement's dead, right? Like the Egyptian escaped with his life. So that's the point. The Roman Empire always perceives the leaders of Jewish messianic movements as threats and moves decisively to eliminate them. Every single time, that's what happens. The Romans come and they try to take you out. This is why Jesus has the messianic secret. Jesus is smart and he knows what he's doing. And so he has what's called the messianic secret. That is the idea that he doesn't talk about the fact that he is the Messiah. He doesn't preach that he's the Messiah. He's preaching the kingdom. He's enacting the kingdom. Anyone that has eyes to see can see that he's the Messiah, but he doesn't go around saying it. And when somebody else figures it out, in the land of Israel at least, he tells them to be quiet, including to the spirits. In Luke 4, 40, we read, Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God! That's my demon voice. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. So even spirits coming out of people, Jesus is like, Shh! Zivit! Shh! Hut! Hut! Oh, quiet! They knew that he was the Christ. He said, Bam! He does it to his disciples, too. Look at Matthew 16. This is what we were looking at before. He said, but who do you say that I am? This is right before he talks about his crucifixion and suffering and death, right? He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, the Christ, the son of the living God. What does Jesus say? Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood is not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Verse 20, then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Isn't that weird? I mean, think about it. Christianity is all about proclaiming Jesus as Christ. And yet Jesus himself says, shh, don't tell anybody. It's because it wasn't time yet. It wasn't time yet. In light of what we just saw here, 
You don't go around saying, hey, I'm the Messiah, the King of the Jews, right? Because as soon as the Romans find out, or Herod Antipas finds out, or Pontius Pilate finds out, they're going to kill him. Until the moment, the moment of the triumphal entry. This, for Jesus, is his, what one scholar calls, blatant messianic self-advertisement. That's R.T. France. That's what the triumphal entry is. And I want to just walk you through this a little bit because it is so encoded that we might not quite get it. But Jesus is walking up from Jericho, from the road from Jericho to Jerusalem is a long, steep ascent. And he's, he's walking up the road to the Mount of Olives. And before he gets to the top, he says to his disciples, I want you to get me a young donkey. And they brought the cult to Jesus. This is Mark 11, 7, and their cloaks, they threw their cloaks on it and he sat on it. Okay, now this is totally not a big deal, right? You're going up a big hill, you get a donkey, you put some clothes on it, you sit on it, right? There's nothing all that spectacular going on here. But then verse 8 happens, and many spread their cloaks on the road and others spread leafy branches that they had cut down from the fields We read from John that that's palm branches. Verse 9, And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David! Hosanna in the highest! And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he looked around at everything, it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. In this incident here, I want to draw your attention to three encoded actions. Specifically, the part about the branches, the part about son of David, where is that? Is that here? Well, they say the kingdom of our father, David, right? And the part about riding the donkey. These are three coded actions. The donkey, the palm branches, and being called the son of David. I could bring you to another gospel to show you that specific phrase, son of David. I don't remember which one it is, but it's in one of those other ones. We've looked at this before in this class, so I'm not gonna belabor it. But each of these three actions, it's not just like riding a donkey up a hill. Once Jesus gets to the top of the hill and he rides that donkey into Jerusalem, he is enacting a prophecy. Are you familiar with this, Zechariah? He will ride on the back of a boat. Yeah, here it is, Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. There's the king. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. It's a messianic prophecy. It's a prophecy about what the Messiah will do. And it involves him riding in, humble and mounted on this donkey. And so what Jesus is doing by riding the donkey into Jerusalem during Passover when the city is swelled two, three, four times its normal population because of all the pilgrims coming in to celebrate the Passover is he starts enacting this prophecy. Let me tell you something. If you enact the Zechariah 9 prophecy, you are asking for trouble because you're self-advertising as a king. That's what it says here, right? Rejoice, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey. All right, point number two, what's the deal with the palm branches? This is a coin from John Hyrcanus, who ruled 
From 134 to 104 BC, he was one of the Maccabean kings. And on his coin, we see a palm leaf on one side as a national symbol of sovereignty. Uh, a little while later, another king, Jewish high priest king named Alexander Janaeus, has another coin with a similar kind of palm fronds on it on one side. I'm not sure what that is on the other. And then after the time of Jesus, Simon ben Kosiba or Bar Kokhba has a whole entire palm tree on one side of his coin and it looks like grapes on the other. And so the palms came to become a symbol of national identity for Israel, which is why these various kings are using them on their coins. Just like in America, the head of Washington, George Washington, is a symbol, or the eagle is a symbol. So it is with these palm branches. So these guys cutting down leafy branches and palm branches and putting them down with the coats and all this to make a pathway for the royal king to enact his prophecy, this is a big deal. This is not... Just like, oh, I think it would be nice for the donkey if he could walk on these branches. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, it's, these are encoded symbolic acts that have meaning. This is N.T. Wright. He says, you don't spread cloaks on the road, especially in the dusty, stony Middle East, for a friend. Or even a respected senior member of your family. You do it for royalty. And you don't cut branches off trees or foliage from the fields to wave in the streets just because you feel somewhat elated. You do it because you are welcoming a king. And so from a historical perspective, these acts that they do at the triumphal entry identify Jesus as this king, as this Messiah. And of course, we've already looked at the son of David as a phrase. We've seen that that phrase implies that this person is the one who's going to fulfill the Davidic covenant to be the one to sit on the throne and rule forever. R.T. France, I mentioned before, calls the triumphal entry Jesus' blatant messianic self-advertisement. It is Jesus publicly announcing his claim to be God's Messiah. He knows what he's doing, he knows the cost, and he does it anyhow. In many ways, the triumphal entry is the point of no return for Jesus. It's the time when he says, Hey, everybody, I know there are a lot of people that have been asking questions about this, but you know what? I really am the Messiah. And then when, when his critics say, hey, tell everybody to be quiet, he says, look, if I tell them to be quiet, the stones will cry out. This is the moment. We're going in. And there, there are over a million people in the city watching, I mean, they're not all watching, but the people that would be on that side of Jerusalem are watching this thing ha happen and come in. And there's a crowd with Jesus. Jesus is not just like walking or riding this donkey in just by himself. There's all these people shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, right? I mean, this is a big uh, public relations incident, right? It's a, it's a public display. And so from this point onwards, Jesus has officially come out as being a messianic claimant. Consider for a moment how Jesus died. I showed you this picture before. Do you know who put Jesus on the cross? Of course, it was the Roman soldiers instigated by the uh, leaders of the people. Do you remember what this is called? Right, so you have the cross, and then above the cross, the sign. The titulus tells what the Romans were thinking when they executed Jesus. The thought, they thought he claimed to be a king. And you know what? They were right. The Romans were right. The sign is correct. Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. That's a correct sign. That's what Messiah means. 
He's the one God anointed as king. So every time a Christian says Christ, by the way, that's what they mean, the king of the Jews. And as we've seen, it's not just of the Jews, but also of the nations, right? Because Son of Man receives the authority over all nations and peoples and languages. So that's what's going on at the cross. How does the resurrection affect that? Well, the resurrection, so we go from the cross, which is all about Messiah or king, to the resurrection. You have a, an empty cave, like a stone over here. Look at that, artwork. And what does the resurrection prove? How, how do they talk about the resurrection? Well, from Acts 17, 31, the Apostle Paul very clearly identifies the resurrection as proof that Jesus is the one God has sent to judge the world, or that God will send to judge the world. Or we looked at another verse before, you remember this, Romans 1, 1 through 3, where God uh, declares Jesus to be the Son of David and the Son of God through the resurrection. So before that, you have, you have the triumphal entry. I'm going to draw a donkey. All right, so from the triumphal entry, Jesus claims to be the Messiah, to the cross, he's crucified for being the Messiah, to the resurrection, he's raised, which proves he's the Messiah. The concluding point is, Jesus is the Messiah. And ladies and gentlemen, to claim to be the Messiah or to claim to follow a Jewish Messiah was politically dangerous for a Jew. We already started by looking at all these Jewish messianic movements. Who do you think died every time this happened? It wasn't just the leader. Frequently, the majority of the time, the followers also got killed. And that's what, exactly what you see in the early book of Acts. It's dangerous to be a Christ follower. For Peter, it's dangerous. For James, James dies very early on, right? Kill James with the sword. Stephen dies very early on. He gets stoned. To be a follower of Jesus in the earliest days was to be in a uh, allegiant relationship with a king that the Jewish authorities thought was bogus and that the Roman authorities thought was bogus. And so you put yourself in a, a situation where you're committed. <laughs> you're definitely committed. All right, so that's, that's Jewish messianism. Let's move to part two here and talk about Roman allegiance. Do you have any questions about Jewish messianism? My point there was simply to, to politicize the term Messiah, to, to help you recognize it's not. We always think it's religious. We think, okay, to say Messiah means to say something religious or spiritual or faith-based, right? That's what we think of. By, it's not. I mean, it is, but it's not. It's a political, this worldly claim. It's saying that Jesus is going to reign on this world. It's, it's saying that Jesus is king and that Jesus is going to bring a, a regime that will crush all these other kings. I mean, that's a very political statement if you think about it. I guess we don't think of kings too much because of our democracy and our way of thinking about things. So we sort of like romanticize the idea of a king. Well, they knew what kings were. <laughs> the kings are all over the place in their world. Now, uh, turn to Philippians chapter 3. We're going to examine for a moment the Roman allegiance of the time. The way that I'm going to do that is by looking at the Battle of Actium. Have you ever heard of the Battle of Actium? I love it. I love it. Because if you already all knew it, it would just be not any fun telling you. <laughs> so, the Battle of Actium happened in the year 31 BC, September 2nd, 31 BC, on the Ionian Sea at a place called Actium, Greece. 
there was a man named Octavian, and he was fighting against Mark Antony. Mark Antony had a partner named Cleopatra. I think it was Cleopatra VI of Egypt. Somewhat of an illicit relationship there. Both claimed, both Octavian and Mark Antony claimed to represent the Roman Republic's interests. Both of them, now there was no Roman Empire yet. There was a Roman Republic. Julius Caesar had brought things along to sort of like set the stage for an empire where you'd have one person ruling rather than the Senate. But uh, he was assassinated because he was doing exactly that. And then there was a civil war. I don't know if you know any Roman history or not, but it was Brutus and Cassius against Mark Antony and Octavian. Mark Antony and Octavian won. And then Mark Antony and Octavian decided they wanted to fight it out so that they could find out who is the one supreme leader of the Roman Republic. Okay? It's a lot of blood, a lot of civil war during this time. But this moment changes everything. The Battle of Actium in 31 BC is a big deal. Octavian had 250 warships called galleys, propelled by rowers. This is a sea battle. Octavian had 16,000 infantry, 250 of these warships, and 3,000 archers. Mark Antony had 290 warships. That's more than Octavian. He had 20,000 infantry and 2,000 archers. So it's two roughly equivalent forces that are coming against each other, both trained Roman armies with competent leaders that are not just like coming into it, but have had major experience in battle together on land and on sea. So this is going to be a serious conflict. By the end of the day, September 2nd, 31 BC, by the end of that day, 7,500 would be killed in action. 200 ships would be sunk or captured. This is one of the great naval battles of antiquity. It was a wet day. The seas were rough and a trumpet rang out early in the morning, and Octavian's ships arrived. Mark Antony's ships exited the Gulf of Actium, and the battle began. Each of them had land troops on either side of the, what do you call that there? Strait. Yeah, on either side of the strait, and then the battle happens out in the open water. The, ba the battle raged all afternoon. Antony's ships were huge. Octavian's were not. Mark Antony's ships were, some of them weighed over 250 tons. Your average car weighs two tons. So take 125 cars, make it out of wood, and float it on the ocean, and you have one of Mark Antony's ships. <laughs> His ships, Mark Antony's ships, had eight banks of rowers, and they had huge rams. A lot of how naval warfare occurred in the ancient times was through ramming. You would just line your ship up to somebody else's ship that's sideways, come at them, flank them, and then just ram into them. And so the front of the ship would have this big piece of wood. And it, Mark Antony's were even better than that. They had bronze plating on them to make them even stronger. And they were so well built that Octavian couldn't ram him from the side because Mark Antony's ships were so well armored, even on the sides, being 250 tons. I mean, that's a lot of... That's a lot of wood. Oh, and uh, his ships could carry six ballistas. <laughs> so these are these big spear shooters, or they can shoot rocks about 200 yards. And they had, it's just unbelievable. Some of his ships could carry 200 soldiers. 
on one ship. Uh, however, Mark Antony had a major problem. Malaria. Then as now, the mosquito is untamable. <laughs> and malaria had devastated his army. And so he didn't have well-fed, well-rested, or healthy troops stocking all his ships. I mean, he had some, but malaria had decimated a lot of his army and had weakened it. All right. Now, on the other side, you have Octavian. His ships were smaller, only four or five banks of rowers, roughly half the size, right? But they were much more maneuverable, but they couldn't ram the bigger ship. So what do they do? They'd have to maneuver around, and as soon as they, if they just like went right up to the big ship, what's the big ship going to do? Yeah. Big ship is higher, right? And so what do they do? They just throw stuff down on the little ship or shoot arrows at it, right? And so Octavia's only chance is to go up to the side and try to break the oars off the sides so that it isolates the big ships so they can't maneuver at all and then pick them off using weapons from more of a distance. So they're pretty evenly matched, in other words. At midday, finally, Antony decided he had to join the battle. Octavian was already out there fighting on one of the ships. Uh, if you recall, you have these different forces here that are fighting, and Antony is over here on one side, and the battle begins over here, at a certain point, and Cleopatra's back here, at a certain point, Mark Antony says, all right, I need to join the battle or else we're going to lose this thing. So Mark Antony joins the battle, and for some reason, nobody knows why, Cleopatra got spooked. And she gave a signal to retreat. Just then, the wind favored and escaped to Egypt. And so Cleopatra and a good part of Mark Antony's ships sailed away in the middle of the battle out of sight to Egypt. When Antony saw this happen, he decided himself to flee. And he got on a ship, or he was already on a ship, and he, he fled away too. However, many of Antony's ships stayed behind because they were in a battle with Octavian's ships. And Octavian stayed behind, and he fought all night long, burning many ships. Antony's land forces deserted him because he ran away. And eventually, in the end, Octavian won. Antony and Cleopatra committed suicide shortly after this. This moment, this decisive victory in the year 31 BC, before Christ, marks the transition point from the Roman Republic to the Roman Empire. Octavian ends up taking the name Augustus and becomes the first Roman emperor, which is pretty incredible because there would be Roman emperors, there would be somebody claiming that title for another 1,500 years. He's the first one. This is, you know, in America we talk about the Revolutionary War as the decisive moment when the United States of America is born. Of course, there were people here before that. We refer to that as the colonial time or the colonial period. There was a republic before that, but when Octavian becomes Augustus, when he wins this battle, they say, this is the beginning of a new era, the Roman Empire. What were the, the changes from the political systems? 
Oh, from a republic to an empire. A republic is where the people are represented by senators. An empire is where you have an emperor who might still have a senate, but he's making the decisions. This event was such a, an important one that a poet named Sextus Propertius composed this tribute. And this is where it's going to start affecting um, Christianity and what we're talking about about the kingdom of God, okay? <laughs> so Sextus Propertius, he writes, My songs are sung for Caesar's glory. This is talking about Augustus Caesar. While Caesar is being sung, do even you pray attend Jupiter? Where a bay lulls the roar of the Ionian Sea, hither came to battle the forces of the world. Apollo, leaving Delos, stood over Augustus's ship. Anon he spoke, O Savior of the world, Augustus, now conquer at sea. The land is already yours. My bow battles for you. Father Caesar from the star of Venus looks marveling on, I am a god. This victory is proof that you are of my blood. Weird, right? They had a different view of spirituality than, than we have, wouldn't you say? The first thing here to notice is the part about Jupiter. The Romans worshipped the Greek gods, but they renamed them. Okay, So this would be Zeus from the Greek pantheon, but the Romans called Zeus Jupiter. right? And this poet has the gall to say to the high god Jupiter, listen up. Listen to my song. Listen, listen, to, listen to me tell you about Augustus. That's, that's what he says here. My songs are sung for Caesar's glory. While Caesar is being sung, do, you, do even you pray attend, Jupiter? Even you better listen to this, Jupiter. This song about Augustus is cosmically significant. Next, where a bay lulls the roar of the Ionian Sea, hither came to battle the forces of the world, Apollo, leaving Delos. So Apollo is another god in their pantheon, right? And what Sextus is saying is that Apollo stood over Augustus's ship and called, Apollo called Augustus the savior of the world. So it's a God saying that Augustus is savior of the world. Now that's significant, that title, right? Savior, also called uh, Sotir in Greek. Augustus, now conquer at sea, the land is already yours, my bow battles for you. Father Caesar, hmm, hmm, who's Father Caesar? It's Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar had adopted Octavian as his son before he died. And so what this says is that Julius Caesar is from the star of Venus looking. So Caesar's already dead, but in their mindset, he's ascended to the star of Venus, which we would call the planet of Venus, right? And he, what, is, what does Julius Caesar say when he sees Augustus win this? He says, I am a god, and this victory is proof that you are my son. You are of my blood. What do we have? We have the, the gods recognizing Augustus as this incredible savior of the world, the incredible one who defeated Mark Antony's forces, and the one who is of the blood of a god. In other words, a son of God. I use a lowercase g there because we're not talking about the Christian God or the God of the Bible, but this Julius Caesar, actually. Uh, and that's something interesting, too, that the Romans did, is that they, 
they had a vote and they declared that Julius Caesar had become a god, had been deified. This is very strange to our culture, but this is what they did. A second, I want to give you three archaeological, or not archaeological, but three pieces of evidence that describe this Battle of Actium, right? The first was Sextus Propertius, and the points there is that he calls Augustus savior of the world and son of the god Julius Caesar. The second is the monument at Actium. After the Battle of Actium, they constructed a monument on the very site, in the middle of the ocean, that said, Imperator Caesar, son of God. Following the victory in the war which he waged on behalf of the Republic in this region, when he was consul for the fifth time and imperator for the seventh time, after peace had been secured on land and sea, consecrated to Mars and Neptune, the camp from which he set forth to attack the enemy now ornamented with naval spoils. This is a typical kind of monument plaque that you would see. And so on this monument, we see once again that Caesar, Augustus Caesar, is called son of God. And then, third of all, we have the Preen inscription. I've actually been to Preen. It's a city. Well, it's just ruins now, but it was a city in what we would call Turkey today. And on the Preen inscription, it says, well, let me give you a little background. The people in charge of Asia, the Roman province of Asia, which is part of the western end of what we call today Turkey. I don't know why they called it Asia. No idea. But, um, that province, the people in charge of that province, when Augustus won this battle, they said, can you please let us honor you for this? We think you're just so great that we want to reset the year and we want to give you honor. And it took a while, but eventually Augustus permitted them to do that. And this was the inscription commemorating their reset of the calendar on the basis of Augustus's birthday. And we read, since the providence that has divinely ordered our existence has applied her energy and zeal and has brought to life the most perfect good in, uh, look at that. Providence has brought the most perfect good in Augustus. Whom, I mean, do we, do we talk about our leaders like this? Whom she filled with virtues for the benefit of mankind, bestowing him upon us and our descendants as savior he who put an end to war and will order peace, Caesar, who by his appearing exceeded the hopes of those who prophesied gospel or good news, not only outdoing benefactors of the past, but also allowing no hope of greater benefactions in the future. And since the birthday of the God first brought forth to the world the good news residing in him, the Greeks of Asia have decided that the new year in all cities should begin on September 23rd, the birthday of Augustus. Isn't that incredible? So you look at this language, very lofty language, but in particular what's significant about it is that they're using this term gospel, which is the, it's actually the plural of the word evangelion, and how are they using the word gospel, good news? They're using it to refer to the birth of Augustus, who has saved the world. And he's a son of God. <laughs> All right, so this is where it gets interesting once we go to Philippians chapter 3. 
verse 17. So people applied gospel, son of God, savior. Another term that I didn't show you, but it shows up in all kinds of inscriptions all over the place is the word Lord. It's routine to call the Roman Caesar Lord. When we get to Philippians chapter 3, verse 17, we see Paul writing to Philippi. And he writes and he says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have told you now and tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, their glory is their shame, their minds are on earthly things. But this is the point, verse 20 here, Philippians 3.20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. Now, in order to understand this a little better, you have to understand a little history about Philippi. Philippi was a Roman colony that Augustus established, settling his veterans there. By the time Paul is writing to the Philippians, this is probably a th the third generation since that happened. Okay? In other words, Grandpa is still out there telling stories about the naval battle that he fought in to win the battle against the evil Mark Antony and the evil Cleopatra that secured the victory that enabled us to sweep the sea of all danger and to make the land completely peaceful and establish the Roman Empire. And I was there. The sea was rough that day, son. Right? <laughs> Or grandson, right? So there's an incredible amount of patriotism in Philippi. Why? Because once again, it was settled with veterans from the previous battle before the one I just mentioned here, and then the Battle of Actium itself. And one other thing you should know is that anyone living in Philippi was granted citizenship, full Roman citizenship. And most people do not get granted Roman citizenship in the Roman Empire who live outside of Rome. It was a true Roman colony. In other words, it was Rome in Greece, in that region uh, where Philippi is. And Paul is writing to the children and grandchildren of these veterans in a city like Philippi, a Roman city like Philippi, you're going to have temples to these gods. You're going to have temples to Julius. You're going to have temples to Augustus. You're going to have temples to Claudius, to these different Caesars. I myself once visited uh, the city of Ephesus, and I came across this baby head. Looks like a baby head, right? Uh, the proportions are off, right? You can see that? This is actually Domitian. It's a later emperor. But you can see that it's a little squished. Looks a little weird, right? This is me standing next to it. It's a big head. And the reason why it's squished like that you see how big that head is, right? It's bigger than mine even. You can, see, you can see it's squished, right? Can you see the proportions are off? The reason why it was like that is because you would never look at that head straight on. You would look at it from underneath as it towered over you in a huge temple dedicated to the Caesars. In a place that people are going to recognize the Roman Empire, their citizenship is with Rome. Paul says in Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven with Jesus. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we wait for a Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ, which means Messiah, which means the King anointed by God. I mean, there's no other ammunition he can shoot. 
I mean, he's launched the nuclear bombs, the other one, the, the Tomahawk missiles, and he's shooting his gun, his machine gun at the same, like everything is launched at the Philippians. Like, look guys, our citizenship is in heaven. What do you mean it's in heaven? Our citizenship is in Rome, man. Grandpa fought to make the Roman Empire. He's like, no, our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then check out how we one up Caesar here in verse 21, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. He calls Jesus savior. He calls him Lord. He calls him Christ, which means a king. He says that we're still waiting for our savior. What do you mean, Paul? What do you mean we're waiting for our savior? Everybody knows that Augustus is the savior of the world. Wait a second. Paul's like, Hey guys, this is a big deal. Jesus is a big deal. Jesus, I mean, what did Augustus really do in that battle? The guy he was fighting with ran away because his girlfriend got spooked. I mean, is it really that big a deal to get all these monuments and big statues named after yourself? Seriously? I mean, this battle is really not that epic of a battle. The other guy ran away. And had it not been for malaria, he would have got wrecked. Right, and because of the malaria. So it's like, and yet this is the foundation of the Roman Empire. And Paul's like, look, 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 let me give you a new foundation. Our Savior, our Lord, is in heaven. And he has a power to transform your lowly body to be like his glorious body. He can, he can not just bring peace and safety to land and sea. He can resurrect your body. That's a bigger power than Caesar has. He's one-upping Caesar. I don't even remember which Caesar was in charge at the time, probably Nero at the time he's writing this. And Nero was a real knucklehead. Anyhow, that's another subject. Look at chapter two, Philippians chapter two, verse eight. Once you see this stuff, it's just Stuff comes alive. The Bible comes alive for you because you're reading it from the perspective of the people that were there then. That's not to say it doesn't affect us now. It does affect us now. I'm going to get to that. Philippians 2.8, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He's talking about Jesus. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. What about Caesar? Yeah, that one too. <laughs> he has bestowed on Jesus a name that is over every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Really? Every knee? Yes, every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth, which I don't know what that refers to. Maybe it's the dead people. doesn't matter. Everyone's going to bow the knee to Jesus. <laughs> and what are they going to confess with their words? And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is an exaltation above all names. Every knee bows to, and says that Jesus is Lord. There's two ways to bow the knee. One is willingly, and the other is unwillingly, being forced to bow the knee. Either way, everyone's going to recognize the cosmic fact that God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ, eventually. Everyone's going to recognize that fact, including Augustus Caesar, including Nero Caesar, and all the others. When early Christians said, Jesus is Lord, it didn't just mean one thing. It meant that he was God's ordained rightful ruler of the world. Yeah. It also meant that 
you do what he says, right? Jesus says in Luke 6, 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you do not what I say? It's like, that doesn't make sense. So it means that God has put him in the position of being Lord of the world. It also means that you, if, if you're going to call him Lord, you're going to do what he says. But it also means that you give him allegiance. It also means that you give him loyalty, that you say, I'm committed to you as the rightful ruler, as the king, right? And if Caesar thinks he's Lord, that's just, gonna, that's just not going to work for me as a Christian. Even if I get tortured, I'm still going to go with Jesus over against Caesar. So, and this is actually, if you think about it, how they ended up getting Jesus crucified in the first place. They tried everything to convince Pilate to crucify Jesus. He kept trying to get Jesus off over and over again. I don't find anything wrong with this guy. Can I re just release him to the crowd and the crowd pick Barabbas instead, right? I mean, Pilate tries everything he can to just avoid this situation. I don't think because he's a good guy. I think because he doesn't like the Jewish leaders and he didn't want, he knew what they were up to. They were trying to get rid of a, a competitor. But anyhow, in John chapter 19, what sealed the deal? What, how do they tip Pilate's hand? From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you're not Caesar's friend, Pilate. If you release Jesus, you're not Caesar's friend. Well, what, how does that work? Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat. He said to the Jews, behold, your king. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. That's what they used to crucify Jesus, Roman allegiance. They said, Pilate, you're a Roman. You can't let this go unanswered. He's claiming to be Messiah. That's Jewish messianism, right? This is where Jewish messianism and Roman allegiance collide, the crucifixion of Jesus. You can't let this man go. And Pilate still tries to let him go. Should I crucify your king? We have no king but Caesar. It's the only king we have. So that's the Jewish leaders claiming Roman allegiance. That's so backwards and upside down and confused and terrible. It's, not, it's hard to even really get into it. And so Jesus, of course, really is the king. And he really is going to subdue all nations. And he really is a threat to the Roman Empire. The Romans were right. Jesus was telling people to be loyal to him over against anyone else. He was saying that. And the Jews knew it and the Romans knew it. What about us? We're the only ones that are like clueless, like, oh, it just means that I should believe that he saved me from my sins. That's not all that Jesus is about. He also requires our allegiance as the king of the kingdom. In Acts chapter 17, when the Jesus people started preaching Jesus is king, they ran into trouble. Right? When the movement got going, these men who have turned the world upside down. This is what they said about the disciples of Jesus who were preaching this message. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there's another king, Jesus. You see that? They're acting against the decrees of Caesar. Everybody knows that if you're going to say Jesus is Christ, that you're saying something over against Roman allegiance. Everyone knew it in their world. And that's why they were upset and in an uproar. 
back to Philippians 3, verse 20, he says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Do you hear that ending part? Jesus has a power that will enable him to subject all things to himself. That is the language of power. That is the language of a ruler, right? A ruler who has power to subject all things to himself. And people get confused about that phrase, citizen, citizenship in heaven. People get confused about that. This is just such a phenomenal quote. I want to share it with you from N.T. Wright on his, uh, from his commentary, Paul for Everyone, the prison letters. He writes, we are citizens of heaven, Paul declares in verse 20. At once, many modern Christians misunderstand what he means. We naturally suppose he means, and so we're waiting until we can go and live in heaven where we belong. But that's not what he says, and it's certainly not what he means. Mm. If someone in Philippi said, we are citizens of Rome, they certainly wouldn't mean, so we're looking forward to going to live there. Being a colony works the other way around. The last thing the emperors wanted was a whole lot of colonists coming back to Rome. The capital was already overcrowded and underemployed. No, the task of the Roman citizen in a place like Philippi was to bring Roman culture and rule to northern Greece, to expand Roman influence there. That's how citizenship works. That's how being a colony works. He goes on. It means giving allegiance to Jesus rather than to Caesar as the true Lord. Paul has described the church and its Lord in such a way that the Philippians could hardly miss the allusion to Roman Caesar. This is the greatest challenge of the letter, that the Christians in Philippi, whether or not they were themselves Roman citizens, some probably were, many probably weren't, would think of what it means to give their primary allegiance, not to Rome, but to heaven, not to Caesar, but to Jesus, and to trust that Jesus would in due time bring the life and rule of heaven to bear on the whole world, themselves included. Isn't that a great quote? <laughs> I love that one. So anyhow, what am I saying to you? I'm saying to you that you need to pledge allegiance to the kingdom of God. That's what I'm saying. I pledge allegiance to the kingdom of God. It mean, and what does that mean? It means that your loyalties are with this government, the government of the kingdom of God, over all others. We await a kingdom from heaven. But how do we work this out? We aren't living in the Roman Empire today, right? We're living in 21st century America. Well, it means that we should be, in one sense, we should be model American citizens, right? We should be respectful and honoring of the authorities. We should be compliant with the laws. We should pay taxes. However, at the same time, our primary allegiance is with the citizenship that's in heaven. So if the American government asks us to do something that the kingdom government says we cannot do, what do we do? We don't do it. And if the American government says we can't do something that Jesus is telling us to do, we still have to do it, even though it might mean we go to jail, even though it might mean the death penalty. That's what allegiance is, right? Doesn't that make sense? And you see that with the apostles. You see that. The government says to them, don't preach in this name. And they say, well, well whether it's right in the sight of you or, or others, we got we to do what God says. And so it's so interesting because who kills Jesus? The Roman government. Who kills Paul? The Roman government. Who kills Peter? The Roman government. And yet, all, they all pay taxes. 
<laughs> and they all are honoring and respectful to the authorities. Look at Jesus' conversation with Pilate sometime. He's very respectful to Pilate. He's totally unintimidated. But he doesn't say, hey, brah, how's it going? No, he treats them with respect, right? Same thing with Paul. You see Paul on, uh, under arrest with Festus, with Felix, with all these different people. He's always respectful, but he's completely not submitting to the Roman government when it comes to preaching Jesus, right? But he'll pay the taxes and he'll write to the Rome, the Washington DC of the Roman Empire, and he'll say, you guys need to pay your taxes. He'll do that. Peter, same thing. Peter says, pay your taxes. He says, give honor to whom honor is due. He says, honor the emperor, even though Nero was the emperor when he wrote that. And yet at the same time, the emperor Nero has Peter killed. Why? Because he won't bow the knee to Caesar. Because he won't offer a pinch of incense to the image of Caesar, right? Or whatever the test was that identified him as a, a Christian at that time. I just want to read to you a little bit from... This is some uh, words that I wrote a while ago that I think gets at this kingdom citizenship thing. How should kingdom citizenship affect our lives today? That's the question I'm asking now. We looked at Jewish messianism. We looked at Roman allegiance. We decided that according to what Jesus said, we got to stick with him. If, if he really is raised from the dead, if he really is ascended to God's right hand, that's the highest position of power in the universe, then we're going to have to agree that he is Lord of the world, right? Now the question is, how should the kingdom citizenship affect us today in our own lives? I don't, think it, I don't think it means we can't be patriotic, but it certainly limits it. It's proper to feel an attachment to one's homeland and gratitude for a country that enables human flourishing. However, at its heart, Christianity is transnational, embracing believers from every tribe, language, and nation. All right, thus a turban-wearing Arab who despises America but follows Christ is more my brother than an apple pie-eating, football-watching, flag-saluting American who doesn't care about God. Christianity cripples nationalism and ethnocentrism in the heart of the believer precisely because it demands a higher loyalty than our native countries. Although it may appear radical, what God's kingdom expects of us is no less than what modern countries require for citizenship. For example, here's the American oath of citizenship. I hereby declare on oath that I absolutely and entirely renounce and abjure all allegiance and fidelity to any foreign prince, potentate, state, or sovereignty of whom or which I have heretofore been a subject or citizen, that I will support and defend the Constitution and laws of the United States of America against all enemies, foreign and domestic, and that I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same that I will bear arms on behalf of the United States when required by law, and that I will perform non-combatant service in the armed forces of the United States when required by law, that I will perform work of national importance under civilian direction when required by the law, and that I take this obligation freely without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion, so help me God. That's, this is probably not an oath that any of you have taken, maybe Anna has taken, but it's when you become a citizen of the United States. If you're born here, you don't take this oath, you're just born here, okay? And look at what it says. This declaration requires would-be citizens to renounce all other citizenships and allegiances to any foreign rulers. America knows that you can't, you can't have citizenship to somewhere else, too. And of course, there are exceptions. There are dual citizenship, right, and, and that sort of thing. And that's pretty much like what our point of view is, is that we're primarily a citizen of the kingdom and then secondarily a citizen of America or wherever country we happen to live in. This makes good sense for a country, 
since it's in its best interest to maximize loyalty and eliminate potential conflicts of interest. But what about the confession, Jesus is Lord? Doesn't that mean that he is sovereign? Jesus himself explains what he expects of his followers. Now great crowds accompanied him and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. The call to become a disciple of Christ is open to anyone, regardless of intelligence, success, wealth, fame, attractiveness, or fitness. Anyone can come to him, but they must commit to absolute loyalty. Jesus is quite explicit here. He says that allegiance to him must come before one's family. Following him sometimes causes family divisions, a fact he knew well, for not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus uses the strongest possible language, hate his own father and mother, to communicate that he must be first. This Hebrew idiom does not literally mean to despise everyone but Jesus. I think you guys know that, right? Rather, it communicates prioritization. One's family must take a backseat to him. Jesus says he must come before our fathers, mothers, wives, children, brothers, and sisters. He must even come before our own life. This is his sine qua non of discipleship. That is a Latin phrase that means without which not. Sine qua non. So like the essential whatever that you can't go without. If we do not commit to Jesus over against all of this, our families, our countries, our associations, whatever group we happen to be in, whatever sports team we happen to like, whatever it is, it doesn't matter. Jesus is saying he needs to be first. And if we don't commit to that, we just can't be his disciples. That's what Jesus said. He said, you have to commit to him even above your own life. <laughs> I mean, what else is there? He has to be our primary allegiance if he is the Messiah, if he is Lord, if he is God's anointed. We may go on having fond thoughts about Jesus and even attend church services, but we are not genuine disciples if we're not genuinely committed to him. Only if we take our king at his word, renouncing all and giving him absolute loyalty, will he accept us. Look, everyone likes to talk about have you accepted Jesus? Have you accepted Jesus? Well, that's good. But what's better is the question, has Jesus accepted you? I think that's what that verse is all about. It's like, go up for me for I do not do you. Yeah, he hasn't accepted you, right? And how, how do we know if Jesus has accepted us? Have you committed to him 100%? Above your family, above your, your other competing allegiances of your life? Because if you haven't, then he's not going to accept. He's already said, you cannot be my disciple if you don't do this one thing. He doesn't say you have to have an education. He doesn't have to say it costs a certain amount of money. None of that. He doesn't say you have to be Jewish. He just says you have to be 100% committed. And if you are, that affects your whole life, especially when other parties are telling you to do things that he says is wrong. Only if we take his king, our king at his word, renouncing all and giving him absolute loyalty will he accept us. He says we must bear our cross, be willing to die, or else we can't follow him. To those who won't commit but still call him Lord, Jesus asks, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? In conclusion, 
The kingdom affects our loyalties. It challenges our identity and limits our patriotism. Kingdom citizens submit to the governing authorities, pay taxes, and give proper honor to rulers. But we do not act against the interests of our king. Ultimately, our allegiance lies with Jesus as Lord. This revelation means that my country, right or wrong, that saying, can't work for kingdom citizens. It means that we have to learn to think in tune with God's kingdom rather than accepting blind patriotism, or not, maybe not even patriotism, but the culture of the country in which we live. Believing in the kingdom really does change our whole outlook on life. If Jesus is really king, then that is going to affect our way of looking at the world and what we're willing to do and not do. The way we see it in other places is it calls Christians strangers. Have you ever seen that before? Strangers? Not like howdy stranger, but more like you're not from around here, are you? Strangers and sojourners, pilgrims, have you ever seen any of those verses? Yeah, like in 1 Peter 1.1, 1, 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion and Pontius and so on. Or um, look at verse 17, 1 Peter 1.17, if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, or the NASB puts it, the time of your stay. You know, the idea is that to some degree we are exiles, we are strangers, we are aliens, we are foreigners. The way Hebrews puts it in Hebrews 13, 14 is, for we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. We have this thing looking to look forward to. And as a result, in the present, we are in the world, but not what? Of the world, right? And that's the whole idea of the separation from the world. You see it all over the Gospel of John and in 1 John, where he says over and over again, look, we're, we're separate from the world. The world's going to hate you. Deal with it, <laughs> right? Because our loyalty, our citizenship, our heart is bound up with Christ who is currently in heaven and who is one day going to return and establish his kingdom on the earth. So those are some thoughts on kingdom allegiance. Thanks for tuning in. And I realize you got this episode out a day late, but hopefully it's still relevant and helpful. Uh, this material I think is incredibly important to get straight and really does clarify our relationship to the world and whatever country or province you happen to live in. I also wanted to mention that we recently got a review in Stitcher. This is our first Stitcher review, and it comes from Doug, whose title is Excellent Podcast, and he wrote, I really enjoy and am blessed by this podcast. The content is varied and relevant. The style is winsome and upbeat. I highly recommend it. Well, thanks so much, Doug. It's really important to me to put out material that is varied. I realize that some other podcasts are very narrowly focused, and I think that's great, but as far as Restitutio goes, I want to have biblical theology, I want to have apologetics, I want to do history, I want to do Christian living, because I want to eat a balanced diet. And so sometimes I might lean one more one way or another as far as the content is concerned, but uh, I do like to try to get it to be as varied and winsome and as upbeat as possible. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time to write that. If you would like to write a review for Stitcher, you can go to restitutio.org and on the sidebar on the right side, 
there's an icon for Stitcher there. You can click on that and then go on over to the Restitudio page on Stitcher and write a review. Stitcher is just another podcast app that people use, uh, sometimes available in cars as well. So uh, I think it will help to, to get some more reviews on that. And of course, our other reviews in iTunes as well. So uh, thank you so much for all those who have supported Restitudio in this way. And uh, if you haven't yet, why not get online and help uh, help us out a little bit to uh, spread the message. Stay tuned for Sunday. I've got an exciting interview with Dale Tuckey about his brand new book called What is the Trinity? And I think that will definitely be an interesting conversation to those of you who are interested in that subject. And then next week, we'll get right back into our Kingdom of God class and look at historical kingdom advocates and really kind of cruise through the first four or five centuries of church history and take note of those Christians who have held to this kingdom belief over the years. Thanks for tuning in. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.